and that was my first time in network security. I spent whatever th three years at the startup uh, doing network security. Came up with a lot of um, internet standards like virtual private networking. If you're doing VPN from your laptop to your office, mm -hmm. I came up with that in Ottawa in 1998, and we patented and then we gave it out. V to the, Wait, what? Yeah, we you're gave it part out to of the creating VPNs. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What? entrepreneurs are forced to do right now is to go out and make revenue. Right. You cannot assume that you're going to get this magical funding. Unlike during COVID, obviously with 0% interest, we saw this, this yeah. I call a dot COVID event because right. it's like dot com. Yeah. Um, but really it was like a co-confused valuation party. I yeah. mean, it just kept getting higher and higher and higher until it broke. Founded in 2017, StartWell is Toronto's independent hub for innovators to collaborate. Our podcasts relate perspectives from the world's most diverse urban population to reflect unique insights into global business, media, and culture. For me, I, I challenged myself with the pandemic and I said, you know what, you got to have fun because as an entrepreneur, it's such a curious challenge to um, have to create value when there's not even a market. Yeah, I, I, I think there's so many directions we can go with uh, talking about the pandemic, right? It's Black Swan event. Yeah, man. You and I have never seen it. Nobody's who's been alive. And so what do you do? And I think as entrepreneurs, I think we're all always looking for that opportunity, that, that blank slate to yeah. invent uh, and so I think for some of us, it was like, yeah, okay, what are we going to do, mm. right? I can, you know, there's a problem, let's go and fix it. Um, but I also think that uh, as entrepreneurs or anybody, I, I, what I saw was that nobody understood their mental condition and the con how that was causing them to actually not be at their best. For sure. Right. And, sure. so, and everything was changing every few months. Everything was changing. So it was, was like, stage one, two, three, four. <laughs> yeah. I told everybody that we'd be back in the office in two weeks. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. That was bullshit. And then like six months later, two years later, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, and so there's a lot of unknown unknowns. Sure, entrepreneurs like that, some. But yeah, there was a lot of opportunity to reflect, yeah. to uh, look at how we were operating before. Do we want to continue that? Mm -hmm. So. My favorite mental game was like, when this is over, <laughs> what are we going to learn and what are we going to do different? Because it was almost like a reset. Yeah. Um, and I was uh, I was looking forward to that. And it, it's sort of like it wasn't over, like there wasn't a moment when you put your finger on, this is no, over. It's not over. Let's move on. Let's yeah. be better people. Let's do something different. It's, like, right. it's not like a New Year's resolution, you yeah. know, where like January 1st, you, you change. 2020 felt like that initially because everyone's like at home. And then it was a couple seasons that went by and then it was like, okay, winter, we're going to hibernate anyway. And then spring, will we come out of this? And then it yeah. kept going and kept going. And then at that point, I think- It kept going. And I, I think that started to, to, yeah, everyone started to lose it because we all thought that it was just one phase, right? And it would hit, it would go away. The fall of 2020, it was over yeah. kind of thing, or maybe the spring- yeah, or maybe the summer, and then it just kept going and going and going. Um, yeah, it was really interesting. Uh, I think uh, I think everyone hopefully learned something from it. Uh, that's what it, my point was. That you know, you'd come out of this and you'd be like, "What did I learn from that?" Right. You know, like what's more important? You know, hanging out with my family, going to work, spending an hour on on the train. Mm -hmm. mm, maybe not. Right. And I think that that also 
when you look at a city like Toronto, um, where we're not going back to work and nobody really wants to go back to work uh, for lots of different reasons, not just because transit <laughs> and the delays, but mm. I think I, I think we've all learned that there are some things more important than showing up to work every day. Yeah, I mean, I look, this is where I start putting on my sociologist hat and I say, taking a step back, something I've always believed about this city, right? This is a historically nine to five, very Anglo-Saxon kind of city. This is a city where people like clock in and clock out. Uh, and traditionally the bulk of our economy in the city is made up of employment within either government or large institutional kind of style enterprise. So the nature of work for office workers, white collar workers has been very like Dilbert comic-esque, mm. right? People take a train, they travel into the city from their suburban house. Then they like try and not poo all day long in the office and hold <laughs> it all in and chuckle and staple things and then like go home and relax, right? And then go to their cottage. Yeah, yeah. Right? They bought and one then... before the last four years, right? If they could afford one before the last yeah, but year. I, you know, I think you're painting a picture of 2000 Toronto, you mm -hmm. know, or 1990s Toronto. Yeah. And I moved here in 2003 from the Valley. Um, and, you know, I'm Canadian. I grew up in Ottawa and all this. But uh, it fascinated me how the Toronto that I remember growing up, yeah. the white, very uh, nine to five, big buildings, finance, mining, insurance, uh, it was starting to change. Right. But it, you could still see it. It was still yeah. around, right? And it was sort of like this tug of war. And you saw a lot more immigrants coming in. You saw a lot more tech people coming in and a, a burgeoning tech industry. That was the start of the tech scene. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. nobody believed that, you know, we could do tech. I mean, Ottawa was tech, you know, or maybe Waterloo was tech, <laughs> but not Toronto. Right. Um, and over the last 20 years, we've grown into, you know, the third largest tech hub in, in North America. Um but I think we've also changed our culture, mm -hmm. right? We're not Silicon Valley North. We've never were. We're Toronto, and we're we're proud of it. Mm. And to your point, it's no longer the mostly white going to a tall building nine to five. That that's not just Toronto. Toronto is so much more now, right? And it encompasses you. It encompasses me. It encompasses mm -hmm. Um, new immigrants coming in, deciding to come to Toronto instead of going to the Valley, yeah. right, from all over the world. And so we're getting the best here. Yeah. And we're also getting quite a lot of different cultures, which we always had. And we, we know always, this, Yeah, right? the cultural diversity, of course, in Toronto for our listeners all over the world, you know, by whatever stat I've read in the last two decades has been consistently saying that, like, yes, the city has the largest per capita cultural diversity. Yeah, right? 51% were, were born outside of Canada Yeah, that live in, in the city of Toronto. And that just adds to our strength, right? Totally, man. Totally. I mean, like I used to, when I had time to mentor early stage startups years ago, I would always say this. I, was always, I would always say that like there are ways in which you can prototypically test foreign markets by looking inwards at the Canadian diversity mm -hmm. that we have and say, well, if you want a living access to a country that you might want to open an office to, there are people that know that country very well down the road from you. So like, you don't need to make business trips before you talk to people about that place, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, I, I'm I'm obviously a product guy. I talk a lot about product and, and uh, my last company, I remember talking to 
you know, customers out in Europe. Mm. And they're fascinated that we had time zone support for them, <laughs> you know, uh, and language support. We're multilingual, uh, multi-time zone around the world. And that was different than what we saw with our competitors from the States. Yeah. Who just didn't think about that. And right. to they your point, Toronto, we think about that because we're not, yes, we are in North America. We're a massive city in North America, but we're a city made up of people from all over the world. And mm -hmm. we ask them, you know, where are you from? And we're, we, we actually want to know. Uh, and so we care about that. And it's, we know that we're just not alone here. Uh, in our little city, even though most Canadians look at Torontonians and think that we're full of shit and full of ourselves, <laughs> which is true as well, because this is the damn best city. Um, but sorry, yeah, joke. it's like the best worst city. <laughs> we're like the best worst city. This this infrastructurally doesn't work. Yeah, it's like clunky. You know, like it's spread out, uh, but yet there's density, and the density is residential, but it's not like blending into pedestrian reality. And it's like there's a lot of problems from a kind of you know. Totally, uh, totally. I, I think Toronto is in this infrastructural side. There's a lot of problems, but there's a lot of good people. And there's a lot of people that have uh, a want to enjoy living together, which is good. Toronto has to decide what kind of city it wants. It's in this this transitionary period as it grows. It's, yeah, it's growing phenomenally. Right, there's so many uh, cranes, construction cranes out here, more than any other city in the world. And I think it has to figure out what kind of city it wants because yeah. it can't continue to be the old city. Just like we were talking about Toronto in the 1990s being this, you know, this city that arrested Madonna for a right? Yeah. We're no longer that. <laughs> Play, playgrounds, public park playgrounds right? were closed on Sundays. When I moved here from New York in 2005, Yeah, they so, were closed on Sundays. Like people went to them, but there were signs that said, this park is closed. The yeah. LCBO was closed on Sundays. Yeah. Except for the one on Queen's Keith. So you could not buy alcohol or play in a playground on a Sunday because you had to be in church <laughs> in yeah. 2005. That wasn't that long ago. No. That was less than 20 years ago, yeah. right? Yeah. And so that's my point. Like it, we're, we're, I think, changing again. We're going through another pivotal moment. Yeah. And so you see this war of, you know, I need my car to drive anywhere or like I need to uh, do public transit or even biking because mm -hmm. you just can't keep driving. You know, there's so many more people, you know, and when you look at larger cities around the world, I think they've gone through those tough times and I think Toronto has not. Mm -hmm. And that's the, the issue that we're getting into right now. Like what does my Toronto look like? Because it can't look like what it was before. There's just too many people here and you can't yeah. stop them coming, right? So let's talk about your Toronto in the lens of your business life. Uh, okay, wait, you moved here from the Valley and when? So I came here uh, in 2003. I remember um, there was two reasons. One, uh, my wife and I wanted to start a family and we wanted to do it back home. And two, George W. Bush just won his second term. And I'm like, this is crazy. Why, <laughs> why would a country vote for this type of president? Right. Um, you know, he seems pretty good <laughs> uh, in the last 20 years uh, looking back. But yeah, th those are the two reasons I wanted to come back, buy a house. You know, we were living in the valley. Homes were just so incredibly expensive. Yeah. You know, two million bucks for some tiny little 600-foot shack um, that needed to be demolished, you know. Right. And so we wanted a real family life. Um, so we came back. Our, our folks were getting older as well. Uh, we didn't want to go back to Ottawa, which is where I grew up. Wanted to go to a big city. Mm. Uh, Toronto was it. Um, yeah, and I started um, working with some publicly traded companies, actually, tech companies. So I just came out of uh, Cisco Systems in the Valley, 
And I thought that's what my career was. Okay. So I had this vision, 10-year vision, be the CEO of a publicly traded company. All right, that was the goal. You always need goals. Mm-hmm. And so I came up, um, you know, I was an executive at Cisco, but I, you know, I came up to be a, a VP of product and marketing at a publicly traded company. Uh, I thought we did really well. 4X on the public markets, you know, that was awesome. Mm-hmm. But I realized one day I was sitting in the boardroom looking around. I'm like, mm, this is not for me. This is where I'm going to be in 10 years. And I looked around and I looked at my future selves <laughs> and I'm like, that's not me. I'm not that person. You know, I know I am, how old was I? Late thirties. Okay. I thought I was old and I'm like, I'm, I don't want to be this old. Right. You know, yeah, uh, you're aging fast. I'm aging fast. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think it was one of those, you know, pivotal moments where you, you look at, have I accomplished what I really want to do? Am I in the position that I really, and you do this every like 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. Midlife crises is every yeah, decade. Every week, man. <laughs> <laughs> During COVID, probably it was every week. Um, and I just decided, you know what? What I really loved mm-hmm. is uh, the time that I did those startups before, back in the late uh, 90s. Um, and so I... Uh, wait, wait, wait. Rewind. Okay, so what startups were you doing in the late 90s? This is like dot-com boom bust? Yeah. Um, what were... What so I did my first startup after university. Okay. Uh, dropped out of university, got bored of coding elevators you know when people press buttons that was one of the tasks i think you, you know you, you think back in these memories and it's like yeah. what caused me to like move that you know when the professor asked me to build that i'm like there's no way i'm gonna build that that's boring as hell i could do that and i like this this sucks i want to, i want some real life experience so i actually dropped out of university oh went to, to work realized that i was really good at computers uh programming and uh did a startup and then what was it? Oh man, it was. Don't be embarrassed. No, it, you can tell. It us. was so long ago, but it was um, basically getting people on the internet. Early days. Yeah, that's what know, I used to do in high school. Modems yeah. and all this, like an ISP. You started us ISP, or we we were building software for ISPs for the oh, okay. for the first ISPs. We actually sold a piece of our software to AOL. What did it do? It got people on on the internet. So you dial into their bulletin board, their modems, and all of a sudden you... It's like an operating system for ISPs? Something like that, yeah. It was fun. Um, oh. After four years... Because uh, you know when I was like like uh, 15, in 95, I was living in Nairobi. I struck up a rapport with uh, UC Berkeley at, over email. And uh, and the the lab that was in charge of BSDOS uh, really loved the fact that this random kid from Africa was calling them, <laughs> and they were like they sent me like a BSDOS server config uh, with multi modem stack uh, to start an ISP in Nairobi, and then I never did, and I went to university instead. Oh. But like that was a very that that time was a very exciting time. It man. was, uh, I, you know, we were thinking about. This internet technology, we didn't even have like understanding of how big it was, but we were like, how big could this be? Is it going to be better than X? You know, that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. we just didn't know. Uh, and I remember within months, the tidal wave just came over and everybody was just, I want to be on the internet. Right. Right. Um, and one of the things that I remember was I didn't have a good business acumen. I just didn't understand business. And so I understand math and computer science, which is what I took. And I, uh, I shut it down uh, mm-hmm. and I said, I don't know what I'm doing and uh, I'm going to go and learn. And so I joined a real startup 
I was uh, an early employee of a network security startup in Ottawa. Okay. And uh, became the chief architect, and we rode that all the way to an acquisition in '99.com mm-hmm. acquisition. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that's actually how I got to Silicon Cisco. Valley. And Cisco? Because or? Cisco tried to buy us and they failed. Oh. We were like one of the only ones that uh, they failed to acquire. Huh. And yeah, then they, they took me out to dinner and asked me to come down. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So it was, and it was my first time in network security. I spent whatever, th- three years at the startup uh, doing network security. Came up with a lot of um, internet standards like virtual private networking. If you're doing VPN from your laptop to your office, mm-hmm. I came up with that in Ottawa in 1998. That's Roy's Roy's little baby. Yeah, and we patented, and then we gave it out. V- the, wait, what? Yeah, we you gave it part out. Part of inter- creating VPNs. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so interesting. Remote access VPN because we we basically modified site to site like static VPNs to be more dynamic so that you can walk around with a laptop and right. connect to whatever. So yeah, that was 1998. We uh, brought it to the internet standards, and that was fun, for sure. <laughs> and that's what I love doing. I love creating stuff, you know. Yeah, and then you're at Cisco, and it's kind of like and then Cisco wants corporate administrative kind of vibes. Well, you know what? That's interesting. Cisco was probably one of my favorite uh, jobs because Cisco itself has this culture that is not corporate. It's not stuffy. It's not. Um, holding you back and, you know, having this weird culture that you have to conform to. It is very uh, entrepreneurial. Okay. So Cisco really is a bunch of little startups, or it was, let's say, 20 years ago. Sure. I have no idea how it is now. But it's a bunch of little startups called business units. They all have their own P&L, their own uh, goals and all of this. And, And really the leader of that business unit is like, the, the president of the company, the CEO okay. of a company, a small company. Uh, and so that was really refreshing. It was very, very entrepreneurial. Mm. And I love that about it. And um, then you have their sales arm, which is really the top sales organization that I've ever seen in my life. Mm. Uh, and that was my biggest takeaway. How do you how do you run a company that has, you know, okay, decent products, let's say? <laughs> Nothing against and Cisco. sell the shit out of them. But how do you become number one, right? right? And it's really your sales and how you treat your customers. You treat them like partners yeah, and not just well, like, like money-making machines. I mean, if you sit on the product side and the innovation side, you're always kind of compelled to create the best thing that you can create to solve the problem as best as you can when good enough is often good enough for the client, right? Mm-hmm. And so like that mismatch of like, you know, the want for innovation to like be pure and cause like, a revolution in the mindset of the customer when the customer is not awake to even the problem or, you know, to the problem being so pertinent to them. Well, yeah, as engineers, we think that the best thing to do is to get the best technology and to create the the most innovative product. But as a customer, that's not actually what you're trying to do. You're trying to sleep at night. You know, you're trying not to worry about getting fired. You're trying to get your next raise. Um, And so it's a very different mindset. And I think what I learned from Cisco was that the sales organization understood the behavioral needs of the customer, Mm -hmm. right? And cared. It was compassionate about them. And usually a lot of sales organizations are not because they're they're pits, they're sales pits, right? Uh, and you have to get to your quota. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not saying that Cisco wasn't like that. Cisco would uh, regularly terminate the 
bottom 10% right. of the sales organization. So, but I think they had a really good balance. And so what you're itching to get out of there and, and do some startup stuff? Well, yeah. So I was, what you know, I wanted to go down to the Valley because I wanted to understand why Cisco was so uh, number one and, and beating everyone else. Um, and then I wanted to do a startup. So after I learned that, two years in, I'm like, all right, I'm in the Valley. I want to do a startup. This is 2001, yeah. unfortunately, right? So we're still in the, the dot-com crash. Uh, I put together a team of, um, you know, ex-entrepreneurs who've exited. We have a small, you know, four-person team. We're doing something in security that's never been done before. You know, we have a business plan. We have no product, right? Obviously, who needs? Were you a, working? Who at, needs a product? Did you have an office? No, I was still working at Cisco. Oh, okay. So we put together this business plan, um, and we started walking around Sand Hill Road. All right, we got we, we got meetings every. The four people all knew tons of VCs. And yeah. so we got all these meetings at Sand Hill Road. Yeah. And it was amazing. They were uh, like, oh, we love you guys. We love, you know, your last exit. Because a lot of these guys had previous exits. Yeah. Except, yeah, we're not investing right now. So it was it was this time mm -hmm. when nobody understood how long this malaise was going to last. Sure. Very similar to w w what happened with uh, the, with COVID. Um and but also at that time too, like a lot of those those VCs you met were probably, if you look at their portfolios, they were probably quite still heavy into like hardware businesses, maybe silicon, you know, like this whole like software revolution hadn't quite taken off. Yeah, it was 20 years ago. You're right. Um, a little bit more than 20. But yeah, it was just that time, right? And obviously it's come back, it's worn back, but it was just like... Good idea, good team, good execution, bad except timing. bad timing. Sorry, <laughs> and that happens all the time. And um, you, you know, if you if you fast forward twenty three years to now, you know, we're, I think we're going through the exact same thing, right? And I like to tell people that twenty twenty three was the worst funding year for startups mm. since two thousand, two thousand twenty one, maybe two thousand eight, but. Those two time periods that we went through are very similar to what's happening now. And for a lot of different reasons. Right. But the ultimate end goal here is to get funded. And the problem is that there's not a lot of liquidity in the market. Right. You're not seeing this this virtual cycle where LPs are getting cash from uh, either an IPO well, you're or early acquisition. Stage. You're talking about early stage capital. You're talking about first, second check-in. Well, I think that there's problems across the board. Uh, I think the 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 first check is problematic because the interest rates are so high right now that angel investors would rather, quite correctly, invest in other vehicles. Right. Right. And because there's no risk. If their money's precious to them, like that, you know. Sure. And we could talk about why angel investors invest, whether it's actually for an ROI or not. Yeah. Um, which I think is is an interesting topic. But sure. Uh, and so your first check is really hard. And so what entrepreneurs are forced to do right now is to go out and make revenue. Right. Generate some revenue, just like you and I were talking about earlier. It's like, you cannot assume that you're going to get this magical funding. Um, and then even on your seed or even on your A, mm -hmm. I, there's quite a, a lot of uh, people just holding back. Yeah. Right. A lot of VCs are just watching. Um, and we've seen the numbers start to come back up since the you know first quarter second quarter but it's still very very small mm -hmm. compared to what it was before um covid yeah no for sure it's a tough time across the board 
if like there's less money being spent subsidizing the pursuance of new business <laughs> models. Unlike during COVID, obviously with 0% interest, we saw this, this yeah. I call a dot COVID event because right. it's like dot com. Yeah. Uh, but really it was like a co-confused valuation party. I yeah. mean, it just kept getting higher and higher and higher until it broke. Well, just think, like the dot com did. Really. But isn't it funny? It's kind of funny that like, you know, you've got all these like techno utopians that are like, you know, always so primed, especially with like Moore's law and this idea of exponentiality pushing the fold with what's possible with technology. I feel like there's always a quotient of people involved in, you know, the the infrastructure of, of the like tech economy, especially on the funding side that like feel um, extra titillated exponentially as more is becoming cheaper and faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as possible in terms of expecting adoption. Like everyone, ex- the, the people that really believe in tech that are like, you know, super um, tech evangelists, uh, you know, in all facets of their life and maybe are involved in finance are, are very, very excited about, you know, like everyone in the whole world, you know, their lives being magically transformed and, and you know, like the futility of toil being removed by, you know, technology. But there's a kind of a discommensurate, you know, means to uh, subsidizing that reality and also creating a financial sustainability model for that reality. And, you know, that's a whole like... Yeah, I, I think topic, that's always been the case, right? It's always you, been the case. You yeah. have very technical people who are in love with the technology, yeah. right? And so they will build that and they won't know exactly what that solves. But, but they think it's cool. Yeah, my point was that in the in the pandemic, right, there was that whole thing of like, okay, well, this is going to be the big momentous event that's going to push the fold for tech adoption because mm-hmm. everyone's at home, everyone needs this technology. We're now, you know, like saturated in. Yeah, well, you saw that with Shopify overgrowing and a bunch of other companies overgrowing. Zoom, right? man. Zoom, if you look at just like. Oh, I remember Zoom. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, for sure. I mean, you know, I was running a, uh, a scheduling company at the time, right? And uh, that was amazing for us. We Wasn't thought. that called, what was that called? Well, originally it was called Zoom. Zoom.ai. <laughs> But I thought that was a cool name. Yeah. Uh, we had AI. We had true AI. But uh, yeah, at some point we we pivoted to be calling uh, ourselves Calendar Hero. Right. Um, and some of that was because Zoom was just too, too popular and we were getting confused with them. That was one reason. The other reason was that we did pivot and focus more on uh, calendaring and scheduling. Uh, but for us, yeah, we saw, a, I think it was a 4X, 5X increase mm-hmm. within the first couple of months of COVID as everyone went home and had to schedule their own meetings. Because you couldn't just walk up to someone in right. the office and right. say, "Hey, let's talk." Yeah. Um, so I think that was that was great for us. At least it was not great for most companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. We saw quite a lot of them go away. And of course, uh, that company got acquired. Yeah. So uh, last two startups, uh, I've been um, honored to to have acquisitions. Uh, you know. We worked seven years on that one. We pivoted from an AI executive admin mm-hmm. nine years ago, way before this AI hype cycle that we've, we have that now. Was nine chat. years ago? Nine years ago, we started with this idea of everyone should have their own executive admin, right? Right, Not just a CEO. Um, and AI can help us with that. Mm-hmm. Natural language processing, so understanding. And so we built basically what's called a chatbot now. You know, you would text them and say, "Hey, I need a meeting." Right, I remember. With, I remember you showing with this, John. To me, yeah. 
and it would know which John, and it would know which coffee shop you like. And so yeah. we had all of this learnings uh, in there. And I think it was way too far ahead of its time. Right. Yeah. The technology was also too far ahead because yeah. it didn't work as well. Right. As humans, we're very, very picky about um, if something doesn't work. <laughs> Everyone expects utility constantly, right? And, the, and as consumer tech improves, even then, I, I, I find it fascinating that people like, you know, that people still use computers, you know, with the mobile revolution and the ease of use of computing on your handheld device. And then you go to your computer and it's like, well, where's that file? Yeah. You know, like no one knows what a folder is anymore. Uh, but anyway, that's, that's, uh, that's a, it's a good point. Yeah. So we, uh, we did that and we realized that nobody had any budget to, to pay for an AI executive. And admin. it was expensive to provide that, I'm sure, with like the back end stuff that you were using. Yeah. I mean, the caveat is that we were not using LLMs. LLMs did not exist. Uh, and so the technology, the AI technology that we were using required a lot less mm, okay. power. Uh, than today's AI. Uh, and again, it was one of the reasons why it wasn't always working. Like mm -hmm. it wouldn't always understand you, which uh, made it fail. And then, you know, we'd see a lot of people churn because it's like, it doesn't understand my form of English <laughs> or another language. Anyways, um, I think the the point there is that the people didn't actually want to pay for that. Yeah. They didn't want that. They actually wanted the very specific thing, which was mostly scheduling. Okay. And so that's why we pivoted to that. And it worked out. Like you said, we did get acquired in 21. Um, and um, How did it feel to do that pivot? Like when you were so years vested in the vision of what the product That was a really become. hard pivot. Any pivot is hard. What Was was there a wake-up moment or was it a slow burn? Was it like, this isn't working, this isn't working, we need to make it work, this isn't working, we need to make it work. And then all of a sudden it's like, wait, something about it is working and that's the thing we have to double down. So we had just raised uh, a good amount of money uh, from a large VC and the large VC was really excited about our AI mm -hmm. and the enterprise focus. Okay. And... We started looking at our sales and, you know, we hired a good enterprise sales team. Half the company was sales and we just weren't getting anywhere. Mm. So we took a year, we weren't getting anywhere and we realized there was no market, <laughs> right? And regardless of my, you know, pseudo bullshit to the investors, yeah, right? And their excitement over this, there was just no market. Um, and we tried and tried again and tried different things and marketing and so forth. And uh, at one point, we just made the really, really hard decision to go and go somewhere else. And I remember us making that decision. My head of product uh, and I were in a room and we were whiteboarding. And we whiteboarded all of the possible products that we could be, right? That we had known interest in mm -hmm. from our customers. Right. So this was really customer-led. And it was, it was a large board because we added everything. And then we asked all of the, the company to come in and add their own. Like, mm. what have you heard from the customers that they would pay for? Okay. And so we, at the end, we had this massively long board and then we went through it systemically and just like, no, right. <laughs> this isn't going to work because of X, Y, Z. And we actually used data and we went back and we looked at logs, what our customers are using. And it was, it was really well done. My head of product led that amazing. Um, and then we decided on one thing, which mm. was let's be a scheduler. An AI scheduler, we're yeah. smart, but we're still a scheduler. Right. And then we rebranded and then my head of marketing also did an amazing job. And at the end, once we launched, relaunched, 
we were like, why didn't we do this like two years ago? <laughs> it's like, it's, it's, it feels right. It's it feels still, right. Like, yeah. The problem was that we lost more than 50% of the team. Yeah. Right. So obviously we didn't need this, the enterprise sales team. We weren't going after the enterprise. So that was a hard decision. Um, but there was quite a lot of um, loss because it was such a, a, a different model mm-hmm. and the vision was quite different. Right. Yeah. But you have to do what you have to do as an entrepreneur. And I always tell people it's kind of a funny thing. When you have a venture that has opportunity and um, has almost a bit of like legacy relationship with clients, clients may trust the team. They will have a relationship with you and may continue with you on the other side of a transition, right? Even if you're selling something entirely different. And we see that here with what we do at Startwell where, um, you know, teams come for a meeting, have a great experience in a meeting room, uh, love the various ways that we make them feel uh, comfortable and special. And then uh, that translates to their marketing team being immediately introduced to our media production, you know, company. Mm-hmm. And it's just that there's that trust there, you know. So it's really interesting that you can actually kind of like go back to your customers and say, well, what do you need? And they'll say, well, we'll try what you're going to do because we know you. Yeah. Well, I think back to my comment about Cisco, right? Why, do, why were they so successful? Because they created that trust. They were the trusted partner of their customer. And yeah. a lot of times uh, they actually had an office in the customer's office. They had a desk. Right. And so when something came up, they needed to expand their network. They would ask the Cisco representative first. Uh, and so that, again, back to my learnings from that time period, I, I've taken that and I've tried to bring it to every single company. You know, the last one, we were uh, trustworthy. You know, we were thinking about their needs. Mm-hmm. What do you need? Uh, I need to schedule a meeting with a candidate. I need to schedule an interview with the team and the candidate. And so we would ask these very detailed questions about what what is bothering them? Right. <laughs> How can we help? Right, exactly. You know, and we took the technology that we had built and we created these products that actually focused on their issue yeah. and solved it. And I think that that helps um, the, you know, the company that, <clears throat> excuse me, the company that I've started now. So tell us about it. We operate in the same way. What's it called? So the new company is called Unified.to. Okay. Much like all of my other companies where I, ha- I pick one word yeah. <laughs> and I try and find a domain uh, <laughs> that is interesting and uh, re- memorable. Um, obviously, I can't get unified.com yeah. um, or even .ai because we, we're not doing AI. But uh, the .to obviously is Toronto. Okay. Really, Tonga or Togo. Is it Togo? Tonga? Does that? But there's no physical relationship there, between that country and your domain name? No, no, no. Well, I mean, just on a tangent. So yeah. the .to domain is actually owned by a Toronto-based um, register. Right. The TLD. The TLD is owned by a Toronto company and they pay the country of Tonga. Oh. Um, and I think it's one of their largest uh, income sources. It's a fascinating business, right? It this is. whole TLD business. Yeah. And obviously it, it can stand for Toronto, but it stands for two to go. Yeah. Um, and I really want to unify because it does represent what we're doing. Okay. So um, what is that? What do you guys do? What is unify.to? Yeah. So. I always like to do something in a different space. I want to learn uh, the industry. I want to learn the problems, the people. Um, And so what fascinated me for, I think, all of my career were APIs and uh, communicating with APIs. So APIs, you know, 
this is how computers talk to other computers, basically. Um, most of the most of the communication on the internet, eighty percent mm-hmm. of the actual connections are happening between servers and servers. Sure, API to API. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for all of my career, we've always been building into APIs, other people's APIs, Google APIs, or whatever. Yep, Salesforce APIs. Um, you know, scheduling APIs, Google Calendar, and so forth. And so I've always uh, really enjoyed that. And so what I wanted to do was uh, I wanted to build a architecture, an API, that would allow other SaaS companies to integrate into APIs without building them themselves. Because when I look back at my previous company, we spent about half of the engineering time yeah, building, building the connectivity, building and maintaining, yeah. fixing. Because everyone else, like, let's say it's a point-to-point connection, that point you don't own can always change, right? And redocument, totally. you've got to update. Yeah. You know? And so our customers would come in and go, "Hey, the um, you know Salesforce connection is no longer working yeah. for me," so we'd have to go and fix that. And so I thought that's really bothersome because I was not in the business of building API connections. Yeah, I was in the business of scheduling meetings. Right. That that's what the job. To, to be done was. And so I thought, just like hosting, I don't care about hosting. I can go to Amazon AWS. I can go to Google, Microsoft. I don't have to understand how to host. Mm-hmm. I don't have a server in my closet anymore. That was like 20 plus years ago. Oh, I remember that, man. Right? Hosting as a service. I miss those days. Rev- no, I don't. Without being nostalgic, no. I, I miss the idea that like you've got a server sitting on a desk in your house or in yeah. your office. And people are connecting to it anywhere in the world. Creating a lot of heat. And then your hard drive dies. <laughs> and, it, and the whole website's gone. Your entire company <laughs> dies, right? Or I like, or like someone unplugs uh, it in your closet. <laughs> yeah, it's like, your computer was on, wasting electricity. I turned it off. What? So, yeah. I mean, like, I don't think anyone listening, yeah. or maybe most, 99% of people listening to this are going to remember that because right. we don't. And even if we do, we block it. Yeah. So... My point is that I don't think we should be building integrations, customer-facing API integrations into our products. Right. Because it is so commonplace and it is not core, Mm -hmm. right? Just like we don't build payment, right? Stripe, one line of code, you're done with the payment system, right? Yes. This is very exciting because you're – I was going to ask you, like, isn't this Zapier? But Zapier is not for developers. It's not for a product. It's for your internal – business process automation, right? right? right. Moving data from your Salesforce account to your MailChimp account, right? And and who's doing this? Your salespeople, your marketing people, maybe your customer support people. Your developers are working on the product. Yeah. Right. And at the same time, so am I right in assuming that what you guys are going to create or are creating is something that is not just a way to connect two APIs together, but actually can replace the need for a custom API to be built? Well, so we don't do anything with your own API. So uh-huh. that's like that side. It's your own API. We have, I think there's a lot of solutions there. Uh, we're focusing on the other side. You, you, your your product, yep. trying to connect to a third-party API, mm-hmm. someone else's API, Salesforce, Workday, whatever. Um, and then the issue there is that your customers now have a ton of different options to use for CRM, for an HRIS, for whatever, you know. And when you look at how many apps we have yeah, as humans, yeah. 
you know, like 20 years ago, maybe we had 10 <laughs> accounts. Now we have 60 on average. And so when a customer comes to you and says, my data, my important data that you need, you know, my employee data, my sales data, whatever, it's over here in this product. Do you have an integration? And if you don't, then they're like, well, I'm going to go and find another solution that does. Um, and so you can't monetize them. And that's one of the issues that we had at the last company. And even the previous company to that as well. Even mm -hmm. when we were doing ad tech, we had to take those ad tech orders, those advertising orders, and pump them into the CRM. So we had to um, figure out which CRM our customers were using, Salesforce, HubSpot. And I remember we only had Salesforce. Right. And so we could not monetize those customers that had a different CRM. And that was a critical piece of their functionality that they needed from us. So I remember that. I remember how it limited my addressable market, i.e. it limited my revenue. Yeah. Um, so you're solving a, uh, a problem that's familiar and that you have a long, you know, time working with it. Yeah, I, I, I'd like to say that like my second language is API, um. you know, which is a really geeky way to to show how nerdy I am, I yeah. guess. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, APIs are a funny, weird thing because like everyone builds their own ideal API, you know, on, on any side of whatever they build. I remember at IBM, before IBM, at Softlayer, the software guys that were in charge of like, you know, I don't know, future-proofing cloud infrastructure as a business, the geeks in the back built out an API that had like 1,400 commands. Mm. And there was like all these calls. And you could do some really cool stuff with it. Like you could get, as far as I remember, you could get, this is back in 2014 or 15, you could get a robot to build a actual server machine for you using the API mm. and provision bare metal servers that were customized. So that was like some crazy, crazy server shit back then. I, I don't think people understand how prevalent APIs are and, and how powerful they are because the yeah. world does run on API communication. This is how the internet works. So the idea for anyone listening or watching this is that, and correct me if I'm wrong or add color to it, is that an application programming interface is simply the machine instruction uh, codex for an application, let's call it, possibly, to um, allow machines to talk to each other and talk to each other from an instruction set basis. So it's like my, what we do through the web browser as humans is almost instructional, right? You're scrolling things, you're clicking on links, you're opening media, you might be uh, interfacing with stuff like that. But on the back end of all of that, you know, the browser uh, no, now I'm getting in a, in a gray right. area there. Well, the, the, like, the browser has to connect to some sort of server, yeah. right? And that server has an API. It's, it's basically like the language yeah. of that server. And there's actually standards around this. The problem is everyone has their own dialect. And the other problem is much like language, right. where you can build a sentence, you can build this sentence in however you want. Yeah. Right? Does it make sense? It may make sense to you. Right. You understand Pig Latin and I understand like British English. Yeah. And maybe we can't speak. Yeah. And so what we've built, and so the way that I got here was by brute force building these connections, right? Looking at documentation and then building the translator. Building the translator for each one, mm -hmm. right? The problem that we had in the last company was that we inter interfaced with 60 different and so we had to build the translator 60 different times. And I'm like, this, this is not scalable. And so when we thought about 
building this new company and when we were starting to look at the market and how uh, how big this was, how important this was, but how many options there were. Mm-hmm. We're like, we can't keep doing that. You know, first off, we can't hire so many people. Yeah. It, right? It, and then... The what, juice isn't worth the squeeze. What happens is something changes, something yeah. breaks. So there was a lot of problems that we learned from the last previous set, uh, set of companies going back even till the late 90s right. where we, we were doing APIs. And so what we came up is a radically different way, which is to your point about a codex, mm-hmm. we created a universal translation layer for the codex of APIs. We call it like an API DNA, right? So if you had two APIs, how could you describe the differences so that you can actually duplicate one, mm-hmm. right? And we take that and we give it to what we've built our architecture and it figures out how to communicate. Mm. And so what that allows is it allows us to add new uh, API integrations within five minutes, 10 minutes sometimes, super quick, instead of like coding them for like three months. Right. And even if you, you know, outsource this to... Does it fire off calls to to whatever service you're connecting it to to figure out like responses or is it more No, no, it's it's not... It'll take the instruction set from an API and just automatically interpret that. Yeah, there's there, there several ways that we train the system. Okay. Um, a lot of times there's API documentation. What sure. we found is that more than 50% of the API documentation is incorrect yeah. or obsolete or old. Yeah. Um, and so there has to be some, some dynamic real-time assessment of the data, mm-hmm. to your point. So there is this uh, real-time analysis, validation of our assumptions. Um, so there, there's several different ways. And we've actually built tools to actually build these integrations for us. So it's radically different than what we have done in the past. Yeah, that's cool. Um, and so it, it gives our customers a lot of benefits because they come to us and, and as you know, there's like, let's say, 100 different CRMs out there. Oh, my God. Uh, there's I, so many. There's so many HRIS systems oh. out there. Yes. And so they come to us and they go, we have a customer, it's a big customer, and they're on XYZ and we don't support it. And so can you can you add that? Because, you know, you support 20 of the top, you know, CRMs. Yeah. Can you add this one? And we're like, sure. And we'll actually do it within that hour that we're on the phone with them sometimes. That's crazy. And we'll get back to them and we're like, here you go. And that's just because of the architecture that we built. So it's all because of... The fact that my 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 CTO co-founder and I have all of this experience at building this, going mm-hmm. through through the hardships of maintaining them. Yeah. So when I talk to entrepreneurs, I, I ask them, "Why you? Why are you doing this? And why you? Why are you going to win?" And I think this is why we wanted to do this because why us? There's almost nobody out there that has gone through the trenches of building these things, understanding the pain points, um, like my co-founder and I have. And sorry, who are your customers for this? SaaS companies. And you're in market. So yeah, we launched um, back in um, uh, June-ish. Okay. Uh, this summer. This summer. Um, we've been in market since uh, September. Um, and uh, we've been closing customers. Uh, we have about 131 different integrations uh, in the portfolio. And we've just expanded to... So we started off with sales crm mm-hmm. um so salesforce hubspot we expanded to hr like workday and bamboo we expanded then to recruiting so ats's applicant tracking systems and just recently expanded to accounting 
Mm. So QuickBooks, Zero, that kind of stuff. And um, we focused on specific use cases, right? So recruiting is pretty hot right now for some reason. Um, recruiting has candidate assessment. Yep. So you're assessing the candidates. You have candidate sourcing, you're finding candidates, job boards, finding candidates. Um, so quite a lot of these use cases. And we focus on those and we, we ask ourselves, much like we did with Calendar Euro, mm-hmm. we talked to our customer and said, what are the problems of your day-to-day, right? So f- our customers are SaaS companies. Their problems are they need data in, they need data out, yeah. right? Specifically, right? So when we look at a specific use case, we know what kind of data they need. They need the jobs from the ATS of their customer into their system. Then they need to create an application. Once they, f- they do their magic, they mm-hmm. find a candidate, let's say, they need to create an application and push it back. So those are that's very specific, right? To that one use case. And by the way, there's like a hundred different candidate assessment companies yeah, yeah. in North America. <laughs> it's massive. right? Um, and so as we expand, we look at these use cases and we make sure that we check the box. Yes, we support this. We have all the, the top companies. So I think that's how you get to success, not to your point, just building technology for mm-hmm. technology's sake because it's cool. Uh, have you been having fun the last few months? I love this phase. We have four. I love this phase. You're like, I, but I ain't gonna hate next year. <laughs> no, 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 no. You know, I love and hate, right? So you know, we have four great people. We've all worked together in the in the past. Okay. Um, it's a really nice number. I remember the last company when we had four. It was one of my favorite times. Yeah. Right. And then, you know, we got more funding and then we grew and it became different. Right. You know, it, it has to. Right. Um, and so we're we're really tight. We're super fast. Uh, love that. Um, you know, but I, I, I can't lie. I mean, it's hard to build a company. Mm-hmm. It's hard to build a company in 2023 for sure. It's probably the best time and the worst time. It's the best time because you don't have the distraction of millions of dollars being thrown at you like you did during the dot COVID era. But that's obviously the bad part. You have to actually execute. You have to be very capital efficient. You have to go after customers and get revenue. That's the way it should have always been. I wasn't like that before at all. I was like, with plentiful of investors, you sort of get ahead of your skis, right? I think now you're forced to be down on the ground. And that's what we're doing today. Yeah. I I swear I'm smiling. I I was fine (laughs) from my headspace. I always find it funny when I hear it explained that way because, again, like we were saying at the beginning, uh, you know, my I've pretty much always in every business, you know, taken a bootstrap approach. And, and I have not. Yeah. And, and I always like, were, I was proud of that. Yeah. And, you know, nothing against bootstrapping. I yeah. love that. Well, you can't do certain things when you have to focus on cash flow, you yeah. know, that you just can't. You can't. There are there's so many ways that I could like lever various things in my company if I had cash. And yeah. it's like, staff access to market even simple little things like flying to dubai for some meetings you know that you can't do ah, i have to put that yeah. off for a year but um but at the same time with the rigor comes uh and and the discipline of focusing entirely on cash flow also comes a lot of surprise and delight you know it, it i agree and i'm you know am i liking this better than the way i ran my previous companies Maybe in some ways, mm-hmm. I feel prouder of the accomplishments. Right. Um, you know, I, I worry obviously about runway. I always worry about runway. It's you know when you get acquired, 
the one thing that I remember the most is not like maybe getting a check in the mail kind of thing. Mm. It's actually not having to worry about payroll. Right. Right. And so when you're dealing with issues of runway right. because uh, funding is not plentiful like it is in 2023, you're always thinking about that even more. Um, so that's not the fun part, but I do believe that the company is being built better mm -hmm. than any previous company that I've ever built just because we're being forced to look at the fundamentals, yeah, right? We're being much more disciplined to, your, to, to use that word. So as someone who has uh, been an entrepreneur, uh, who has seen a couple of companies, uh, you know, through an acquisition and who also spends time from what I understand mentoring other founders, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Pay it forward. The looking forward, because we're just about at the end of the year, looking forward into 2024, do you have particular things that you are advising people of to be cautious of or uh, different ways that they could change their business in 2024 if they're starting something new? Yeah, I mean, not, not, not to be a, a, a downer, but it's like focus on your customers, get the revenue. Yeah. Focus on being capital efficient. Yeah. Right. Um, that's my main message. And it's not because we're going through it, but because I've talked to so many entrepreneurs who may have a great idea, but they're waiting for funding to execute. It's like, don't, oh, just don't. That's stupid. Um, you yeah. have to get out there and you, yeah, you have to, it, it, we're back to eating ramen. We used to be there and all of a sudden we got, you know, thrown lots of money and, you, you know, spoiled. Uh, and now it's back to eating ramen to get, and, and I think this is good because it forces the bad companies to go away. Mm-hmm. Um, and it forces us to focus on what's important, which is th the real metrics of the company. Um, what can you offer as insight into the venture capital world, at least here in Canada, um, for those same companies who may be kind of anticipating around the corner a raise or needing, yeah. needing capital even for their business model? Let's say it's you know something deep science and Well, I, I think if you're in the top of your industry... I, you should be able to get funding. Right. I agree. Uh, if you're doing AI, you should be able to get funding. Lots of funding. Um, anyone else is kind of screwed. Um, and I think more so, you know, I, I love Canada. I don't want to move, you know, but it is what it is. Uh, we are more risk adverse. Our VCs are more risk adverse. Uh, they may or may not have less uh, cash in their funds. Um, and so it is what it is. We live here because we love it here. Mm -hmm. We could be living in the valley or whatever, right? Dubai, uh, where there's more money and maybe less uh, risk averseness. Um, I have seen. I was just in. Uh, I was just in San Francisco, uh, and I spoke to twenty different VCs. They are cautious, but they're optimistic, mm -hmm. right? And their their wallets are sort of open. <laughs> there's there's not a, a hell of a lot of deal flow um, at closing, but. Uh, much more so than what I've heard and seen here, right? Uh, outside of those two, so again, the top in the in that the industry, the market is definitely getting funded, um, and then AI. And that's about it. So it's just going to take a lot longer than we expect. There's a lot more shit companies that got f massive amount of money, yeah, that need to be flushed out. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, right? this is what's been going on for so long now. The, the LPs, last decade, the li- man. The limited partners aren't getting their money back. No. There's no IPOs. There's no acquisitions. When there are acquisitions, it's for 10 cents on the dollar. Yeah. The money is not coming back to those investors. It's not coming back then to the VC funds because mm-hmm. they're not getting new funds. Kind of like 2008. Yeah. Uh, and then that means the VCs don't know when they're going to raise next. So they're holding on to their fund a lot tighter. I feel like we're also, if you take a step back, we're in a very interesting era because if people are starting companies that are technology companies, software companies, without the expectation of a need to scale that to some sort of ubiquity for the reason of the flip and you know going public and like making a billion dollars, and instead they're focused on, ooh, this is a phrase people don't like in startups, lifestyle businesses. Mm. If you're starting a company to make, and your lifestyle could be lush, right? But let's say you start a company with the aim of, I'm going to make a million dollars a year for myself, right? And I'm going to keep the, the 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 business to a certain size and I'm going to calculate the organizational structure from day one and figure out, reverse engineer kind of that growth path. And let's say you have a great product, you know how to sell it, right? So mm-hmm. you're kind of creating that whole thing from scratch. You're planning your business. Um, but if you plan it to be bootstrapped or at least revenue growth based, um, with solid, you know, customers from day one that you can acquire and scale within a means. Um, I think there's a greater opportunity to do that and do that in a sustainable way today than there ever has been. I, I would agree. I think there's so many opportunities for you to do that lifestyle business. Uh, take what you know in that maybe nobody else knows or that you're one of the experts in, right? Um, you know, do a masterclass. Um, open up a Shopify store. I, I know so many people that... They're basically have moved away from the corporate life mm-hmm. to running so, a bunch of sh- yeah <laughs> tiles, you know, from wherever, yeah. you know, and making a decent business out of it and growing that. Yeah. Uh, obviously, it's not just like, you know, build a Shopify store and they come. That's right. bullshit. Right. But, you know, these people are actually understand marketing and promotion and all this. But, yeah, you can do that today, I think, better than you can at any point. And I think back to, you know, I was talking about doom and gloom about there's no funding. But on the flip side of that, and in relation to this, there's so many other ways that you can get people to work with you. Mm -hmm. You don't have to go out and spend $150,000 a year to hire an engineer in downtown Toronto or downtown New York, right? What are the alternatives? Those days are sort of gone because now we, you know, COVID, allowed us to think globally, to think remote first. Mm -hmm. And that was a massive shift because before we were constrained to the physical space, an office in a city. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't live there, you couldn't get hired Mm -hmm. for that company. So you you weren't hiring the best and you were certainly not hiring the cheapest. Right, if you lived again in an expensive expensive city with immigration controls, right? Like you can't just bring in people instantly to fill that job. Right. So that was the other option. You would you'd transport them over. Not great no. either. And so today you could hire anyone in around the world. You can hire the best person for that one thing that you're doing. Doesn't matter where they are, doesn't matter what time zone. Yeah. And that allows you a lot more flexibility. It also allows you to lower your costs typically if they're outside of say Western Europe, North America. Right? So you see quite a lot of what I would call uh, time zonal uh, hires, mm-hmm. which is like in North America, that means South America, right? So you're hiring an engineer, software engineer yep. in Brazil for like half. Um, but then, of course, you can always go and hire someone, a marketing specialist for whatever, 
who lives in whatever. So as a 20-year now resident of Toronto, 20-year plus, uh, where do you see, as you mentioned, we become this kind of tech hub in a sense. There's a lot of startup companies based here. There's a lot of tech innovation. We're commercializing research from the universities in the region and all this stuff. A lot of um, potentiality for even just that, I think, in the next decade. Um, but how does that pair against this remote first culture? And, you know, yeah. in terms of talking about the sustainability of that uh, growth momentum in our tech ecosystem. I think, like I said before, Toronto's going through this pivotal moment of deciding what it wants to be next. Mm -hmm. It moved from this very kind of boring city in the late 90s, 80s, to an immigration uh, destination in the last 10 years. Um, a lot of tech mm -hmm. migrants, basically, from yeah. all over the world, and also here, homegrown. And I think as we grow, what I'm seeing is that because of COVID, because we spent so much time in our home and we want the our neighborhoods to be interesting, the nice thing about Toronto is that Toronto is really a city of 200 neighborhoods. Right. We are a vi villages, basically. We hang out in our village, our neighborhood, and we like to stay there. And this is, I think, maybe different from other cities. It's not, you know, when you live outside of Toronto in Canada and you look at Toronto, you're like, it's a big-ass city. It's full of cars and pollution. It's not. It is full of cars. And yeah, pollution. but it doesn't feel. But like, it really you know, is a yeah. two hundred different distinct neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. The issue that I see now is because we've been accustomed to staying home and going for walks and hanging out in our restaurants and all this. We want that to continue. We basically want a livable, walkable city. Mm -hmm. How does that work when we have more and more immigration, which we cannot change, mm -hmm. uh, where everyone has a car, right? Um, can we bicycle to work? Can we walk to work? Does having these stay start well offices, mini offices all over each neighborhood work? Yeah. So hubs, I go there, hubs, suites, yeah. instead of going to one massive office downtown with, you know, two million other people right, right. every 9 a.m. Um, so I think we have to rethink that. And I think a, a lot of cities are probably going through this, but I think Toronto is... At, is having both issues, the growing issue, mm -hmm. um, plus also now this whole lifestyle issue. Right. We don't want to go back to the office. Right. And especially in a city like Toronto, that takes an hour at least to get in. Yeah. Um, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. I agree with you. And actually, we're seeing that as, as Startwell's doubled down in the last, really since 2019, right? And then I, I changed a bunch of stuff during the pandemic to to help for this in terms of custom running around with a screwdriver and fixing things. But like um, our real estate mix in 2019 was 50% bookable space on demand and common space and 50% offices and co-working dedicated areas like workspace, focused workspace, workstations. Um, I flipped it and now we only have like maybe 5% of the square footage is office space. The rest is all bookable meeting space and it's all turnkey with AV. Like I've built out all this AV mm -hmm. We include stationary and everything. So what Startwell really is now is primarily a destination meeting space where meetings could be different types of things like corporate gatherings, right? Um, I think that flexibility is important because yeah. I think everyone, everyone wants to work slightly different because right. we've seen, see the Pandora is out, right? That like when we all went home yeah. during COVID, we all understood that actually this is pretty cool. <laughs> 
you know, if I could, if I can build a home office and then I can get outside and go to like my local restaurant and yeah, hang out with started, my friends. People started questioning what their lifestyle actually is and what they want it to be. Yeah. And, and we're given the opportunity by the situation to start saying, well, how do I want to live? And then, yeah, these topics of like, how do I want my city to afford that type of livability is the next step for sure. Um, yeah, hopefully civic engagement goes up, you know, and all this stuff. To, hopefully, yeah, to change. But yeah, I, I think infrastructure. I think the way that we uh, commute, transport ourselves. Uh, I think that's super important. If that doesn't get resolved, I think we will see people leaving. Yeah, because again, you don't have to be here. You can live in Collingwood, right. which is one of the fastest growing cities in Canada. People are going there because it is quieter. Um, and they can work. They can work for a Toronto-based company over there. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, but having said that, I think Toronto is an amazing city. I think it will fix itself. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of issues that we Torontonians complain about, but there is still a huge amount of immigration. Yeah. And you just have to step back and wonder why. We we are living in a, an amazing country, an amazing city, full Absolutely. of opportunity. Agreed. Thanks for spending time. Yeah. I'm very welcome. Thank you for inviting. Yeah, man.